Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington. Today we're going to talk about neighborhoods and neighborhood development. Joining me in the studio is co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael, and we have one guest with us today. Mark Lakeman is here. He works with the City Repair Project in Portland, Oregon, and he's going to – well, he's got a a pretty full schedule here in Bloomington. There will be a public uh, discussion with Mark, and he's meeting meeting with some neighborhood groups and a variety of other things. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Mark, welcome. Thanks, Bob. Thanks. Mary Catherine. Thanks for being here. Mary Catherine, good to see you. Hey, Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. You were gone last I week. I was gone. I was in Southern California, and it was cold. I think it was warmer here than in Southern California, <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad to be back here. Well, welcome back to the rain. Yeah. Well, Mark, Bloomington is, uh, and we were talking before the program, it's sort of a progressive outpost here in, in Indiana. You know, we have a lot of discussions about city planning, neighborhood planning, neighborhood development. Uh, Portland, Oregon is one of those places that I think people from Bloomington often point to. Um, would you sort of go back to, to your beginnings and your background and tell, tell the listeners, you know, what your background is and how you got involved with the City Repair Project? Well, the City Repair Project is uh, very much an expression of Portland culture. And uh, I find that when I'm going around talking about what we've been up to, people are at least as as interested in Portland, Oregon as a whole as they are in what we're doing, which is not surprising to me because it really, it really city repair has come from Portland. Uh, maybe it's, you might say it's an expression of youth culture or younger, younger, uh, the younger generation of professionals and, and community activists. Um, but we're, we're coming out of this context where participation across the community is very strong. Uh, the neighborhood associations are not just reactive, but they can actually be constructive and proactive. And uh, people have been deeply engaged for several decades in you know, identifying problems, converting them into solutions, whether it's uh, you know, installing bike lanes, you know, more bike lanes per capita than anywhere or uh, – you know, installing urban growth boundaries and street tree programs and historic preservation. I mean, it's really possible to go on for hours talking about all of the initiatives that have been undertaken that have improved our quality of life to set a standard for the country. Um, but I think one of the things that w- w- once once we get into that process um, over time that we've seen is that all those apparently separate interests start to weave together and then become mutually reinforcing. They've affected the political culture and the, the, the business entities as well so that we all kind of get into the same boat because it's become so pervasive. Mm-hmm. So then you start to see new generations of people coming forth, uh, you know, picking up the torch and running with it to create new forms and new ideas. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have now. I think we have at least two or three generations of people that have been participating in this way. So that's my background mm-hmm. and that's really where city repair has come from. It's yeah. kind of pushing the edges now. Well, uh, how, specifically, you know, how, how did city re- the city repair project start and, and you have sort of a, a mission statement for the city repair project? Let's see. There's a number of different ways to think about how it began. Um, for me personally, I think of it as as, as a moment in the uh, early 80s when all these community activists and planners in the city government decided to take the rooftop of this two-story parking garage and on a weekend without the mayor's p- uh, permission actually, um, painted the rooftop of this thing in this glorious graphic design that was quite quite sophisticated and beautiful. But it was kind of this seizure of a rooftop of a building that we as a community intended to take down and turn into a public square that for me was kind of the beginning of the idea that you, would, you could take space and make place quickly and beautifully. And um, that, that, actually, that stroke led to the creation of the public square, the first major public square built in the country since the 30s uh, in any major American city. And um, even though that was a bit controversial, what it led to was an, an idea, you know, of the public living room. Um, and I think the beauty of what what became city repair uh, was the realization that you don't just need that room downtown; you need it everywhere, especially where people live. Mm-hmm. You know, it's nice to have public art downtown, but why do you have to leave where you, where the public lives to go visit a piece of public art? So. 
what we've been doing is really uh, re-examining the whole fabric of the city and, and thinking of it as a fabric of community. And uh, really, our idea has been, well, if we can participate to create a central living room, why can't we participate to reinvent everything else so that we, you know, we come out of our acute so- social isolation, which is really a, a, a very real problem in the United States, and uh, reinvent the places where we live so that we're not so isolated, so that we have a talkable community, a, a walkable and talkable uh, fabric of place. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we're after. We're, we're, th- we're saying that if there are problems in the city that result from our mutual isolation, then we can repair the city by coming together to address these problems and through that build community, through that reengagement, you know, build new relationships. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, it, it sounds like you're, you're um, going about this, you know, one neighborhood or one square at a time, Correct. It used to be that way. Uh-huh. Um, now it's sort of forty or fifty at a time. Uh, what we what we've been up to in the last several years is a, a is a kind of um, cycle, a, a, an, an annual cycle. It takes almost a whole year to enact. Uh, the first year we started this in two thousand and one, there was only one project that year. The next year, however, there were seven. Mm-hmm. Now that first project was. Was so successful. It was. It was. It was a seed that we planted. We we thought, okay, we're going to practice bioregional economics. We're going to source everything locally. There's going to be all of this sharing. We're into, going to integrate all of these systems. All these solutions will be integrated into this one project. So you'll be able to model sustainable economics and ecology at once. Sustainable, you know, social interaction merging with um, the creation of place. And it was uh, the the stories traveled so broadly that the next year there was city funding and there were seven projects in seven different locations. And at this point, um, seven years later, we're looking at 40 to 50 projects. And all of these are being planned at the local level. The dialogues are all happening now, been happening since November. And come May, all these neighbors will come out from wherever they are in the fabric of the city and they will be building these projects together mm-hmm. um, simultaneously at the end of May. Well, can you break down that first project for yeah, me? Yeah, I need that too. Yeah, what, what yeah. exactly was okay. it? Yeah. It was a little community meeting house in a neighborhood in far southeast Portland, Selwood. And uh, that was kind of the first place where we had uh, gotten some activity going to begin with back in 96. So there was already some work underway. And uh, there was some willingness to, to undertake a really substantial, permanent, um, kind of cutting-edge project. And that was uh, what, what, what some people refer to as a natural building. It was built out of earthen masonry but designed to be resilient and to last, you know, as, as long as maybe a thousand years if it's maintained properly. So it was a high-performance, utterly natural building, which meant that it's the embodied energy in the building was quite low. Ecologically, that's such a good thing because you're not requiring a lot of energy to create a place that then saves you energy. Um, So the clay that we used to combine with sand and straw, straw is fiber, uh, was sourced locally so it didn't have to travel far and pollute by transportation Um, and then didn't have to be industrially processed to create. It was literally something that people, even children, could help to create. So these monolithic masonry walls were built uh, that have outstanding thermal mass and insulation capability um, as a demonstration for the rest of the city. The the two really important things that I think came out of it were that people realized that they could create place or build together while having fun. And then secondly, they could be building solutions that they felt good about. Mm-hmm. And so that first project, it was a little, it was a little solar building. So it just heats itself and cools itself through passive means, um, and then integrates some new, some ancient technology to, in order to work. Uh, but we were doing it in such a way that it was accessible to the community that was coming forth to to participate. And what's the facility being used for? Well, it's a multi-use space. It's kind of like some people think of it as a kids' clubhouse mm-hmm. when. Um, when school kids from, from Selwood Middle School come to, to visit, their jaws always drop. They come around the corner into the, uh, into the backyard area where it was installed between houses on one of the blocks um, there in Selwood. Uh, the kids come around the corner and their jaws just drop, especially after Lord of the Rings um, first came out because it, it's so, somewhat reminiscent of that. It's very 
it's very sensuous in a way, very emotional looking because people were designing it and creating it together locally. So you didn't have an architect saying, well, it has to look all plainer and sort of um, stoic and colorless perhaps. I don't mean to be too critical of architects. That is my background, however, so I can do that if I want. Uh, no, it was very it was very colorful and emotional um, in, in from the very beginning. So it, people could feel a broader range of emotions when they were in it. So kids will come around the corner and see that thing and just go inside and have all kinds of ideas. And sometimes they just sit there quietly because they're you know, they're, they're really being fed by it. Mm-hmm. So it's a clubhouse, but it's also a meeting space. It's a teaching space and it's an you know, overnight sort of guest house. It's anything that we really want to use it for. Mm-hmm. I like to go there and read. Yeah. Well, here's sort of a, one of those mundane, you know, questions that I have to ask. But were there issues with, with zoning or with government when you decided to put this thing up? Let's see. Well, we're permitted to – in the city of Portland, like most cities, I think, that there's a certain scale – up to which you can build without a permit. And so because this was a this is a technology that is approved in the code in only some parts of the country, uh, we wanted to undertake this experiment, but we didn't want to have to negotiate through those rules yet. First, we wanted people to, to kind of be able to experience um, the spatial effect of it and the beauty and quality of it first before we entered the conversation. So because we're, we're able to build things up to 200 square feet without a permit, um, that enables enabled us to build this small building. But the city actually was giving us funding to build it um, and that's because of the previous work that we were doing that was very successful in building partnerships. So they said, well, we're going to give you this funding because we want to see this experiment that is outside of the rules. And that's kind of that culture that we're living in um, in Portland where you actually have – you don't really have a, 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 a gap between the political entities and the community. The, the leaders are coming out of the community. So the loop is kind of closed there. Mm-hmm. Okay. We have a phone call. So let's go to the phones and Stan. Stan? Hi. Actually, uh, Bob Salzberg <clears throat> touched on the, uh, the very issue I was interested in. We have a, uh, a community organization called um, <clears throat> BRI, and I wondered whether we have uh, more restrictive zoning and whether we need a social education program here to get more people on board. BRI is Bloomington Restorations Incorporated. So, Well, zoning laws are certainly uh, an issue to contend with. Uh, the way that these, these, uh, these tracts, these zones are laid out, have historically been laid out, has been identified as a, as a problem, as a challenge for the development of social culture. Uh, I mean, just to begin with, People making decisions about how we should live and work, you know, usually separating living from working, uh, are not necessarily people who are having a, a community sort of oriented priority. They're thinking of in terms of efficiency of the industrial city um, and isolating people from where they live and work. I mean, living from working disintegrates the, the, the great value of living and working among the people that I mean, among the same people, because then through work together, you really build trust. So if you come home at the end of the day after working and you live among people you haven't worked with, there's a lot of, um, you know, human relation that you don't otherwise get to experience or you don't get to have. The value of working side by side with someone makes it much easier to live with someone. And that's kind of how we built culture for thousands of years. But more lately, those kinds of laws um, really disintegrate those functions of living. And uh, I think that's something we've identified in Portland and made great strides to unmake. Uh, but the rest of the country still still is contending with those things too. And I'm not saying we aren't. We definitely are. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the value of, say, a mixed-use development, I mean, people are saying, wow, what a great idea to integrate living and working. That'll make the the streets safer where workplaces are because people will be present, eyes on the street, all of that logic. So it's an ancient idea and it's not as if we have to turn the clock back. It's just what makes sense for people, I think. All right, Stan. Thank you. All right. Thanks a lot for the call. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Are are you talking about any kind of um, cooperative – aspect of, of your plan, for example, in, within neighborhoods that are participating in this? Do you have um, cooperative gardens or how do you – how else does this express itself? 
Well, really, everything about it has to be cooperative. Um, not that you know everyone must cooperate here. I, I think. <laughs> Would you, know, you like it? <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of how it begins. I mean, that's the model that everyone kind of aspires to. But how it actually shakes out and manifests is a little different every time. Sometimes it's a, a broad group of people that start off with an initiative. They're pretty sure that they know what they want to do mm -hmm. because they've maybe been having potlucks and doing other projects for a while. Sometimes it's just an individual who starts off saying, you know, darn it, something's got to start happening around here. Things are out of control. Nobody's talking. And then they, uh, then they call a meeting or a potluck. Usually we encourage people to meet around food first, not to say, hey, everyone who doesn't know each other, let's get together and work together suddenly. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. they haven't even really gotten to know each other. So um, we encourage people to do a little just social networking first and find out who's out there. And then hear, you know, do some listening and hear what people are already thinking. Chances are they're kind of on the same page. So once people actually get together and start to, to become intentional about something, uh, usually they're identifying issues and problems. Um, and at the same time, we're encouraging them because people are asking us to advise. You know, we're, we're, sometimes we come in and, and help, but sometimes we're kind of external and they just call us as a resource. But uh, we're encouraging them not just to talk about problems but to identify what they like about the place. So keep that proactive vein of discussion alive. Uh, and eventually they'll hit on something that they want to do together, whether it's just to build a bench at, a, at an intersection maybe where there's kind of you know, the sense that there's some possibility to do, to do something. Or they'll, or they'll install a community garden and, and uh, make some space available Uh, one of the nicest things that lets things happen um, really immediately without having to go negotiate with a, you know, a, a municipality is that people actually say, well, I have all this lawn here that I'm not doing anything with. Why don't you all just you know, build a bike rack here or you know, take over this, this grass strip? Sometimes our grass strips are as wide as 10 feet. That, that's, pretty, that's a pretty good community garden when you multiply that by 100 feet, the mm -hmm. length of the lot. And then once that happens, you, you hear people saying, well, that's not really enough. We need some more. And then you'll notice it's happening on all four corners and then more and more over time. The first place we started this 10 years ago now has something like 36 installations and um, straw bale houses being built around the space and uh, all kinds of wonderful things. Hmm. All right. 855-0811-877-285-9348 and noon at indiana.edu. Uh, I want to remind you that we're talking with Mark Lakeman today. Mark is with the City Repair Project in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it's probably a good time to mention that there are some opportunities to speak further with Mark, uh, including a wine and cheese reception open to the public tonight from 5 to 7 at Tabor Bruce Architects, 213 South Rogers Street, and tomorrow morning there's a session at City Hall from uh, 10 until noon, if I'm not mistaken, where Mark's going to make a presentation, and I'm sure there'll be a lot of discussion about what they're up to in Portland and how Bloomington might uh, learn and borrow from some of the great things going on in Portland. Council Chambers tomorrow? Council Chambers tomorrow. Okay. Right. Um, there are a lot of things. I, I looked at your website, and there are, there are a lot of things uh, that were in the website that sort of piqued my interest, um, talking about the, the project takes from the, the tipping point. Some, some of what you're doing takes from the tipping point as a, a model for uh, intentionally focusing on intersections in space and time. And I want you to expand on that. Well, let's see. Um, the, uh, the intersection has always been a place where, uh, let's see, in the, place, in, the, in, the, in the places that I like to visit the most in the world, you can go there and it almost doesn't matter what culture you're visiting. You could be looking at Tibetan villages or go into the deep Amazon. And the places where people are coming together, their pathways are all traveling to come there. And it's really an, it's an intersection. They're intersecting. Um, I, I think it's just really fabulous. Then, then maybe you go back to your, your hometown and you go visit your, your planning department or go – to a university and visit the urban, urban design uh, section of the library. Open a good book on theory and it'll say, um, in the broadest sense, the goal of urban planning is to facilitate communication and, uh, and go a little farther and they're talking about ways to intersect. It's really interesting though to find that we live in this, in this vast gridded network um, 
in which you know intersections, street right of ways are not really seen as a cultural con- uh, continuum or um, as a cultural commons, but more as a uh, as a as a as a conduit for movement of goods and services, where we're kind of going from living to working places, and not much is supposed to happen in between. And an intersection is maybe a place where you collide, but it's not a destination. It's not a place of convergence where your lives come together and you meet people. Um, and you know, to get into why that is true historically, you could go back five thousand years and visit the Babylonians or the Assyrians, the more lately the Egyptians, Greeks, and Romans, and uh, those very aggressive cultures. They liked the grid. They would impose it over the villages. They would erase villages, lay down grids. And grids were a way to organize people and just keep them working because they wouldn't be intersecting. Now, if we are aspiring to build community, on the other hand, we're going to want to be talking to each other and we're going to want to be intersecting, not just at potlucks and wine and cheese, you know, gatherings, but all the day, all the time, incidentally, you know, unplanned um, incidental meetings. So the beauty of of the village is that we all like to go visit in other countries. You know, we'll save our money and go spend some time over there on vacation. The beauty of them is that there's all this culture being built and not not on a, in a scheduled kind of building process. They get to intersect every day in those ancient villages of our own ancestors um, so that they get to say hello and they get to interact. They get to just see each other as they're traveling mm-hmm. through the fabric of the town or the village. And community can build itself. Like in an Italian village, they don't really talk about building community because it builds itself by the way that – the village is laid out like an organ of community, like a reflection of the priority to build culture. So to look at the way an intersection functions can actually tell you about your own community. How does my community work? You can go look at your intersection. Are people's lives converging or are they merely traveling through it? So I don't know if I've directly answered your question there. Well, well you've, you've answered it somewhat, but you've sort of prompted other questions, of course. I, I, I'm trying to to wrap my arms around this. So if, if we were to – Mary Catherine and I were to take a little trip to Portland, would we see things at the intersections in Portland that would um, sort of help us understand this? Yeah. Okay. The first, the first time we – the first uh, installation in southeast Portland led to – about 70 other projects, um, 10 major intersection installations, but then uh, a scattering across the city and all of the quadrants of different things. Um, some of them, you know, you, you might just be driving through or walking around, uh, say, in the Sunnyside neighborhood, and you'll just keep coming across wonderful things. Sometimes it'll be an entire intersection like this. The most fabulous installation in Portland is probably the Sunnyside Piazza where they took the Fibonacci geometry of the sunflower and they laid it down graphically on the intersection surface. And then they built these wonderful um, dome trellises that span from private over public space on all the corners. So each corner is kind of its own intersection, almost like a temple in a way. But then there are bioswales and solar-powered kiosks and benches, um, trellises, other houses are, are – the, the Department of Transportation is permitting all of this and having a ball actually and they're helping other transportation bureaus figure out how to make this happen. Um, like St. Paul recently passed an ordinance to let s- citizens do this to the streets as well and Portland's helping with that. But as you move down the streets, you'll find – you know, go on the walking tour. You'll walk to someone's house to see what they're doing and – They've given their whole front yard to the community to turn into a poetry garden with a solar-powered place to sit. Up the way, there's another solar-powered feature, which is a community kiosk. Most of this is made out of earth and masonry, but it's all weather, treated with beeswax, and so it sheds water. But um, at this school, there's a a form, a bench that's shaped like a local mountain, and embedded in the mountain is this beautiful solar-powered kiosk. And then not, not far from there, there's a bicycle memorial, a memorial to a cyclist that was run over by a truck and the community, you know, was there as in his last moments and he said, you know, please tell my mother that I love her. And uh, and then she would come there and sit at that corner and then finally people and people kept bringing flowers and gifts to that location. So finally a neighbor said, you know, take my take part of my yard, take this carve away the retaining wall and make a place for yourself to sit, you know, if you want to mourn your son here, you know, do that and so if you go there now there's this fabulous um, glass mosaic love seat carved into this yard, 
and then a pillar of earthen masonry that's solar powered. It glows at night through all this uh, mosaic glass. And uh, you could just keep going and going and find saunas where the community is, you know, getting into the sauna together. I mean, actually, not just knowing your neighbor, but actually caring enough to spend time together and, Mm -hmm. you know, linger and build relationships and stuff like that. So. Yeah, all across the city you can see these interventions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, we've hit uh, halftime of our program. Uh, we're in Indiana. You know, it's kind of a basketball reference. <laughs> <laughs> uh, our guest today is Mark Lakeman, who works with the City Repair Project in Portland, Oregon. We're talking about neighborhoods and neighborhood development and actually community development. Um, phone numbers again if you want to join the conversation, 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. You're listening to Noon Edition on member-supported WFIU. Production support comes from Closets 2, providing organized and expanded closet and storage space for home office and garage, using a variety of systems with no major renovations. Closets 2, owned and operated in Bloomington, 332-2233. And from South Dunn Street Project, represented by Brian Lappin Real Estate, classic bungalow-inspired architecture in the Bryan Park neighborhood of Bloomington, www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU is a media sponsor for A Day On, Not A Day Off. The City of Bloomington is honoring volunteers and organizations who take part in the Martin Luther King Day, A Day On, Not A Day Off initiative. And there'll be a reception on Monday, January 15th at 6 p.m. at First United Methodist Church, followed by a ceremony at the Buskirk Chumley Theater at 7.30 p.m. More information at wfiu.indiana.edu. A noon edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael and our guest today, Mark Lakeman. Mark is with the City Repair Project in Portland, Oregon. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. We always seem to get in good conversations during our, our little tiny breaks, <laughs> and um, so we'll go ahead and, and we, we started in on this. I was talking share. about... Yeah, well, we'll share. I was uh, talking about my neighborhood my block especially, that we, we are very uh, social with each other and we have very predictable events throughout the year that the, you know, the, the adults and children alike you know, look forward to and, and we plan them as part of our lives. But um, I, I was thinking of climate because in the wintertime, um, we, we all tend to kind of just hide out in our homes and, and not um, be out interacting with each other as much. And so I was wondering if that um, – if, if your kind of project that you're working on is a little bit more feasible in Portland's climate than it might be applicable to ours. Go ahead. All right. Well, we do get a lot of rain, and it and it gets quite cold there. So our strategy has been to uh, to you know incubate like everybody else does in the winter, kind of get in there and sort of snuggle with our families. But uh, after the holidays, well, let's see. Just before the holidays, the kind of call goes out. We put out an RFP mm-hmm. request for proposals, uh, and so everyone everyone knows the process has begun. And if they're not already talking with their communities then they've got this this RFP, which is really just a way – it's a helper for them to organize their ideas. And so they'll they'll look at that and, and talk about it with their neighbors. And it's asking questions like, you know, what is your present capacity? You know, uh, what are your goals and objectives? It just helps them to think about those things and get clear. Um, we're not asking them what do you want to do necessarily. We just kind of want them to kind of organize to the extent that they're ready to participate with more people. And after the holidays, um, there's a period where all these all these uh, answers to the RFP are coming in. All these proposals are coming in. And it's not a competitive process, although everyone kind of thinks at the beginning, oh, yeah, we've got to kind of compete with other people. And I suppose that's exciting. But nobody's ever been turned away. And we always figure out how to fund, how to, how to find the expertise and talent and the skills to support whatever anybody wants to do. And it can be anything. I mean, any way that people think that there's a problem that they want to turn into a solution can be um, can be met and 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 you know 
overcome or transcended or whatever. So that's our attitude about it and, and it's been – it's proven correct. But after January, as people are heading towards spring, they're also uh, meeting and talking and having food together and um, you know, building their relationships as they're getting ready come May to actually build something together. So they're designing it but then they're also trying to figure out you know, how are we going to do this and you know, they'll need a designer or they'll need a builder or they'll need somebody who um, can provide childcare during the meetings. And really what's going on is it's a way for them to organize their own communities. If they can't find – if they're a low-income community with a very small professional sort of population there, then we'll find other people who are standing by ready to jump in and help. Um, but usually a neighborhood will have an artist or will have a builder you know, and they'll fan out and they'll find those people and it's a way to reconnect to the community. It might look like you're only building a community bench but actually you're reweaving the fabric of, of, of the American community in this way. So you know, they'll, they'll come together and once they have a sense of what they want to do and some sense of who's going to help them within their own community, then they'll try to figure out how to build it and some people will say, well, we need a budget. And someone will say, I know how to do that. And someone will say, well, shucks, why do we need money? I've got all this material in my backyard. You know, and so we're starting to see this sharing of the natural capital that's already accumulated. And in the end, some of these projects are built for sometimes nothing in the way of money. Mm-hmm. And it sure can teach you a lot about, um, about how things can work in this world when people actually start to share with each other. So it's a very collaborative thing from the start and in the end, it's a real epiphany. I mean once people are done building that thing, they've built so much more than that physical artifact right in front of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a couple phone calls, so let's go to the phones. Jared is first. Jared? Hi. Uh, yes, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I just tuned in about 10 minutes ago and I, I was in, enjoying uh, some, of your, some of your discussion. It was uh, making me think – it was really making me think a lot about – what you're saying in the sense of not only a reclamation of public space for communal uh, use and enjoyment and interaction, but also it was interesting uh, your, how you were giving examples of, uh, in some sense, donation of private space mm-hmm. uh, to uh, collective use. My, my question is, a lot of those notions, I, I think, um, have, have been ingrained to run counter to what uh, you know, to the, the capitalist, um, you know, market economy uh, upbringing that a lot of us in America have uh, come up with, and I'm wondering what cultural and idea, and, you know, what cultural changes and what uh, changes in attitudes occurred in Portland and in other in, in the communities where these projects have been successful to enable this uh, this kind of change in um, in attitude towards property and property used to, uh, to be successful. Wow, that's such an excellent question. There's a million ways we could go with that. Uh, well, first of all, the, the public square in Portland is really an expression of the, uh, the revolutionary foment of the 60s and 70s, I would say. Um, I, I think across the country and the world, um, people were you know, focused on, say, the Vietnam War and resisting the war or... Uh, they were marching in the streets saying, you know, we want to be equal or unequal people. We want to, uh, you know, we want to live in dignity or whatever their cause might have been. Um, and I, I think everyone made headway for the, in the things that they were fighting for, free speech or trying to really understand what democracy would mean. Uh, in Portland, this took the form though – this took a permanent form in, in the, in the uh, guise of the, of the public square there where um, there had been enough community convergence at all levels from the, from the local community to the, to the civic entities and uh, advocacy organizations, um, professional um, business entities. We wanted to see some permanent change. It wasn't, it wasn't enough to live in a city where the downtown was de- deteriorating. I mean, at this, there were all of these things that were converging. The downtown was deteriorating. We were looking for a magnet. We wanted to reinvent its identity. At the same time, people wanted a place for democracy. So what we arrived at was a win-win for everyone. Even though there, there were people that were saying, no, this is the 100 percent block. We have to have some sort of taxable square footage here. What ended up happening by building this um, open space was that all of the present um, square footage, the existing square footage around the space suddenly became more valuable because everyone wanted to see this new place. To, they were attracted to this new sense of a village center. So 
I think the momentum of the time, which was really a, a very much a democratic impulse in my opinion, um, led to the creation of a facility. And I think we're really conscious. People were saying, what good is freedom of assembly without a place to assemble, you know, for God's sakes. <laughs> um, so, so, where, so, so where do you see that emerging uh, in, in, in our, you know, in, in, the, in the 2000s, in our future? In this city? Yeah, and, and well, we there, there was, like you said, there was this, you know, there were, there were a number of social movements that got people out into the street that people cared about, and, you know, it, it provided uh, opportunity for these intersections, which you discussed. Where, uh, where, do you see, where do you see a role for that today to, you know, bring this back? Well, I think that this is a, a timeless concern, and uh, our community... I don't know. There's there are a lot of different ways that you can look at history, kind of like between the tide will wash one direction or, the, or another between the impulses of empire and the impulse of the village to reassert itself, you know, everywhere. And uh, so I think it's, I think it's uh, a set of dynamics and a set of concerns that will always be with us and will always come out of us, um, sometimes really strongly in, rea- in reaction to the sort of overall state of, of the times on a political scale such as now where people are kind of reacting like we saw with the recent election that also happens at the local scale so I think that its applicability is is really timeless and until we really turn the tide and um, establish a new balance um, we're going to continue to be in this sort of historical tension through time that's my kind of macro scale view of it Jared I appreciate your call we're going to move on but if you uh, didn't hear um you can talk with Mark Moore tomorrow. Mark Lakeman Moore tomorrow morning at uh, City Hall from ten to twelve. He'll be there. So uh, if you want to continue the discussion, you can go there. All right. Uh, we have another phone call, so we need to move on. James is next. James. Uh, yes. Hello. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, my question is somewhat along the lines of the previous caller. However, uh, a little bit more. Uh, want to get more nitty gritty and not quite so philosophical. Uh, in your reply, uh, I've been in urban planning for 30 years. Uh, I did all the Chicago suburbs a uh, long time ago and uh, everything. And as a previous caller mentioned, so many people are getting away from uh, urban planning, uh, city planning, uh, uh, environmental planning, and going to more of a lucrative fields of technology, uh, although geology has become high-tech. But my question is, like yourself, you are a public servant, and you are paid by, I presume, uh, Portland's uh, county government or city or whatever, and how much salary do you get paid? Plus, coming here to Bloomington, um, were you paid, are you doing it volunteer-wise? Because many people think that anything like we are doing, you are doing, is all volunteer, and they say, well, we can't do that. You know, we can't volunteer. We have bills to pay. Uh, who is paying your trip to Bloomington, and how much, and how much is Portland paying you so that you can entice other IU students to get involved in what you are doing to make to let them know you can pay your bills and you can make a, a living doing this? James, thanks a lot. Wow. Well, I'm going to have a really interesting answer for you. Just to start with Portland, uh, we we really we're kind of a, a land planning, civic participation, urban design crazy culture there. So uh, urban planners are urban designers are pretty well supported. Although you know they're always having to fight for, to, to be sure their voice is heard. Um, but at the same time, and, and I definitely come out of that tradition. Uh, I I am personally funded by my own. Um, my own private concern, which is which is a design firm where we do architecture and planning, and uh, you know sustainably oriented, culturally focused uh, kinds of projects. Um, some of it is as small as uh, a deck addition on a friend's house. I'll never turn a friend away. Mm-hmm. And uh, recently, we've been helping with this Olympic skating facility. Really interesting, innovative approach to building giant infrastructure where. 2010 Olympics in Whistler and Vancouver are wanting to have more community participation at the front end so they don't end up with a a disused white elephant at the end of the process where instead this thing um, is going to look and work like a Canadian waterway, an old pond or a stream. It'll be an Olympic skating facility 
that will have, you know, be marvelously sculptural and sustainable and reflect the built, I mean, the natural environment and then the columns will look like trees. Anyway, so we help, we help to kind of, you know, enable construction to reflect more of a, of a community's metaphor for, for livability. Um, and that's the kind of private work that I do. And so I'm a volunteer here supported by that work. Um, Bloomington's paying a small fee. We only asked a small fee um, to support the nonprofit of City Repair. City Repair is, uh, is an almost all nonprofit driven. Hmm? What are the dollars? Put the dollar signs in front of those, sir. He wants to know how much the small. I will. I'll tell you. Um, It's kind of embarrassing, (laughs) though. Don't be a politician. Just please ask a question. Sure, sure. Well, I I just before I do though, I want to say it's kind of embarrassing because I only wanted to ask a small amount. Um, We're well supported by our community, so we don't need a whole lot. But the reason why I'm prefacing this is because what you're pointing to point out is that it's really important and it's very well worth supporting. And it shouldn't all be volunteer-driven. So the answer is $500. I'm here for three days for $500, which is sort of ridiculous. But um, I didn't really want to ask for more than that because we really didn't need more than that. Um, just like I was saying earlier about how our projects are really propelled by, by you know, the building. I mean, there's three forms of capital. One is economic, but the other two are social and natural. And we're, we're, we're practically nuclear-powered or solar-powered by social capital and the sharing of natural so we don't have to actually ask a whole lot when it comes to economic because we're doing fine. Um, and that's the answer. But at the same time, I think this is the most important work that we can be doing, you know, but, to build but, community but through design. But through, uh, young folks, young people can make a, a living doing what you're doing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, and how much do you make a year? Just give me a range within. Give, give us some, well, he's an give some range. Well, I'm kind of a weirdo. I, I, uh, do you make over fifty thousand a year? No, I make less, but my employees make okay. more. Good. Okay, <laughs> that lets that lets all the, all the younger people in the in the community know that, gosh, hey, we can get into urban planning and doing what this guy is. Uh, even though he's talking, you know, philosophically and not down to earth so much. Uh, like I say, I've been in 30 years, but we can make a living doing what he is doing. And, you know, uh, we we can do it, you know, like the previous caller mentioned. Hey, how do we get people, you know, back into this, thinking of it, you know, uh, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and, 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 that you know, get back into the forefront of environmental uh, change and uh, preserving the, the landscape and everything else. And uh, but you know, but you know, so we're, I'm just saying, tell them, tell us, tell them, right on the air right now. You know, hey, I you know, I I make as much as a uh, you know a, 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 a computer programmer or something, and I can pay my bills. I can raise a family. And I, I work hard, and I do a whole lot for the community. And we, you can do it, folks. You can do it, guys. You can certainly do it. And, and we're, we're definitely all about encouraging people to follow their bliss or to live their dream. But it's more complicated. It's more uh, nuanced than that. It's not just about money. Like you start to follow your bliss, and you find stuff like, like I've found. You can't pay your electric bill if, you know, if money's a that comes into play. I'm sorry, sir. James. We're going to move on. We uh, I'll let uh, let Mark answer the question. Then we've got a couple other callers. But sure. thanks Thank for your you. call. Well, I think um, his point is extremely important. People do need to have a sense that they can make their way in the world while doing things that they believe in. But one of the things you'll find as you go is that stuff starts to happen for you that you didn't really expect. You know, as you make that commitment to make the world a better place. Uh, at my firm, firm, for instance, our computers are all donated to us and our rent is, is given for free. And that's because our community relationships are deep and broad and people really believe in what we're doing. So our firm doesn't need to make as much as, as you would otherwise need to make because so much comes to us because we're part of a network of – and it's not really even necessarily a formal network, but it's um, people really wanting to support, support and mutually reinforce each other. So we'll do things to help other people as they're doing stuff to help us. And, you know, those out there who are interested in alternative currency, this is a really fabulous notion too because it's without – it's really without currency. It's, it's just a direct um, expression of people caring and knowing each other. Okay. We're going to the phones now. Molly. Molly, go ahead. 
Hi. Um, I'm calling. Actually, I'm here at the studio with Mark. He's um, here at the request of the Council of Neighborhood Associations, or CONA, and we're sponsored by the City Department of Housing and Neighborhood Development Hand. And I just wanted to point out that we sent out a RFP ourselves to all the neighborhood associations in the city, um, and we got a proposal back from Green Acres neighborhood, which is adjacent to uh, the campus north of 3rd Street. And after this program, we're going to have lunch with 11 people there. They have about 20 people active, and several people will join us after the lunch and tour the neighborhood. They have several places they'd like Mark's input on. And uh, Bloomington does a lot of volunteer neighborhood work, and Mark's very inspiring. So I hope other people will come to, to hear him tomorrow and ask questions then. Okay, Molly. Thanks. Okay. You could have come in the studio. We would have <laughs> just put you on the air in here. But. <laughs> All right. Thanks a, lot. thanks a lot for calling from the uh, control room. And we have DJ next. DJ? Yes. Hi. We certainly appreciate Mark coming here. But, but um, before Bloomington uh, gets an inferiority complex, I wonder if he'd uh, <laughs> like to investigate how many great community groups we have here. We have the BRI. We have films in the park. We have uh, professors living near campus so they can walk to work. We we kind of have a lot of really the social, I, I think, interaction things he's trying to talk about. So I'm wondering how well he knows uh, the city of Bloomington in terms of all the things, social services we have and community kitchens. And you know, I'll let him go on and on. I'll let, I'll let Mark answer that. But okay. before, before the program, he said he'd been here one time and he didn't get to spend enough time here because mm-hmm. he really liked it. So, Yeah, I was here on a um, speaking tour two or three years ago and um, just – you know, didn't have a whole lot of time in each town that I was in. Uh, but when I arrived in Bloomington, um, it was very clear that I would enjoy myself by spending more time here. I mean, everyone that I met was very wonderful and interesting, and I was taken around to places that – the kinds of places that were, you know, very much an expression of local community, whether we're talking about shops or um, or homes or, or food that people are – are um, offering from their ethnic ethnic traditions. It was clear that that they're that this is a more tolerant, open, and creative place. And I heard lots of stories, uh, but then I had to leave so soon that um, I just had to look forward to coming back. So you definitely have a rep. I mean, people think of you as a as a place to go, which is um, not like uh, a lot of the the rest of of the towns. Um, it's kind of a a very progressive place with um, a strong identity. Yeah. I wondered also if you had tried to uh, apply some of these uh, principles to inner city areas where there's a lot of uh, blighted buildings and poverty and stuff like that, would these principles work there? Oh, yes. Well, we talk a lot about gentrification. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of an, uh, an automatic expression of um, the way that capital flows in our country and um, the way that uh, investment happens in relation to community and the way that community doesn't really have the power or the authority to, to drive its own processes of change internally. So this is really – what we're working on has really been configured as – you might call it an anti-gentrification um, sort of project. It's, it's designed to plant powerful seeds that can expand to really any scale of engagement so that ultimately people realize that on a local level they can be the engine of change. They can make the world reflect – their own their own priorities and their own um, values uh, on a local level. For instance, these intersection projects. I mean, in Portland, very quickly after the first installation, this thing was legalized for every neighborhood in the city to be able to do for free on on as short a timeline as two weeks, if necessary. I mean, we 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 understood that without a sense of place at the crossroads, so to speak. Um, well, like I was saying before, it's kind of like an indicator. You can see how the community's doing by seeing whether they're actually engaged or not out in the public commons, especially in an intersection. So people will maybe start with an intersection and do projects and it sorts of, sort of expands from there. But in these projects, it's given to the community to have their own intersection to design and program and to develop over time. And so they've gotten the most crucial node in the fabric of community, that, that point of convergence in the commons, um, where once the change begins, from there it can expand out to the rest of the fabric. And presumably you, can, you, you might have a banker and a developer 
and an architect, but you also have a lot of mothers and children and fathers out there in the community. And if their relationships we reweave, they can say, wow, well, if nobody else has funding for our community center, maybe we'll just start with what we have. I mean, we've seen people build libraries on the corner of of these intersections, and it'll take an afternoon with some foster kids to build, and suddenly you have, you know, for maybe 15 bucks, the statement of the importance of knowledge and learning and, 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 and books. And uh, then someone will say, well, shelves are full. Now what? And someone will say, well, let's have another potluck. And, <laughs> you know, in the afternoon, we'll add some more shelving. And, uh, you know, over time, you have this, you know, expanding effect. And eventually people say, well, we need to really dedicate more resources to this because we can see that, that everyone values it. So if the process of change is driven ex- internally, that's the premise by which we try to reverse this process of gentrification. All right, thanks. All right, DJ, thanks a lot for your call. Uh, we only have about a minute to go, so I think it's probably worth just going over the opportunities that you can have to see Mark again and continue this discussion because there's a lot of, you know, we could spend several more mm-hmm. hours on, on this topic here on the radio. But this evening, uh, Wine and Cheese Reception, which is open to the public, uh, 5 to 7 at Tabor Bruce Architects, 213 South Rogers Street. Um, and then tomorrow morning from 10 o'clock until noon at City Hall. Will there be uh, representatives chambers. from the other uh, neighborhood associations there tomorrow at the um, at your talk at City Hall? Yeah. My I see Molly is, shaking her head. Molly yeah. saying yes. Yeah, okay. I think I would just like to say that um, – you know, this is we're trying to catalyze things, but we're not trying to offer specific models. Ultimately, what everyone does really has to be their own ideas where they live. Mm-hmm. It's not like Portland comes to Bloomington. It's that you know, Portland just shows how they're doing, how they can do what they do, as Bloomington is showing how they do what they do. Mm-hmm. All right, and we're out of time. So I would like to thank you for being here with us today, Mark. Mark Lakeman from Portland, Oregon and the City Repair Project. For Mary Catherine Carmichael, producer Catherine Hegeman, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times.